Kia ora, I'm Katie Harris. It's February 1st and this is The Front Page, a daily podcast presented by the New Zealand Herald. Defence Minister Judith Collins will be meeting with her Australian counterpart today as both sides of the Tasman look towards interoperability. This meeting comes after more details were revealed about the poor state of our military by the Herald this week. The NZSAS and the wider Defence Force are losing people in droves and officials are doing their best to throw cash at the situation to prevent our security apparatus from grinding to a halt. So, what exactly is going wrong with our military front lines and is Judith Collins the right minister to fix it? New Zealand Herald investigative reporter David Fisher has been looking into the crisis for months and joins us on the front page today to discuss just how dire the situation is. David, where does the NZSAS sit within our security apparatus? So in New Zealand's military settings, it's considered that we've got three strategic elements with which we can exert force. Those strategic elements are our frigates, which, you know, cost six, seven hundred million dollars for the two of them. The P-8 surveillance planes that we've got, again, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars worth of kit. And the NZSAS, a regiment with a supporting element that altogether means about 500 people out of our 10 to 12,000 strong New Zealand Defence Force. Interesting. And this week you reported that that part of the security apparatus, the NZSAS, is vulnerable to collapse. What's the issue here and how exactly are they trying to stem the problem? So those those are extraordinary words, vulnerable to collapse. And I was astonished to hear that defence chiefs have been briefed in those terms, vulnerable to collapse, near collapse and other such phrasing. The issue for the NZSAS is that it has very experienced operators in there who have all left at around the same time. Those experienced operators are the NCOs, the non-commissioned officers. These are the corporals, the sergeants, large corporals, staff sergeants that constitute the backbone of any military operation. They are the ones that take the fresh, wet behind the ears officers and tuck them under their wing and make sure that they don't make any mistakes. Not that there's that many fresh, wet behind the ear officers that come into the NZSAS. So these are the people that have learned the lessons of operations past, that have refined their trade, their expertise to as much of a sharp point as they can. And when new troopers come into the NZSAS, it's those experienced people that the new people look to to learn the skills that they need to perform at the level that they need to perform in that particular regiment. Can we take a step back here? If someone wanted to, say, go work in the NZSAS, do they already have to have a background in military and be quite elite to get in there? To get into the NZSAS, you can take a direct entry path straight from the civilian world. And that's an option that's been open for about 10 to 15 years. It's not where most of the NZSAS members come from. They tend to come from the three services, Navy, Air Force, and predominantly from the Army. And we need to think about what the NZSAS is. It's an elite regiment within our fighting force. These are people who are the best of the best, and there is a real legend that comes with that, an incredible uh, history and a motto, who dares wins. 
and that captures the sort of esprit de corps of the NZSAS. So you can, if you meet those stringent conditions that the NZSAS requires that you do so, that is to pass a gruelling selection course that goes on over days and days and days. That's as much, if not more, about mental toughness as it is about physical toughness. But you then need to show the right attitude, the right mindset to fit with the NZSAS, and then to go through nine months of initial training that is incredibly demanding before you wind up getting badged, as they call it, and getting the winged dagger that denotes you as a member of the unit. We're seeing people who can't afford to stay in the organisation, who are getting offered tens of thousands of dollars to leave. And what that means for the Defence Force, it would probably really struggle to do civil defence missions that we expect of it. You know, if another earthquake were to hit or if more cyclones were to strike, the Defence Force would really find it tough to help the people who would otherwise rely on it. Now, they aren't the only ones at risk of losing key personnel. Can you speak about the wider Defence Force context here? The Defence Force is in a state of crisis. It's extraordinary how much experience it has lost over a short period of time. We're talking about the last two to three years, about a third of uniformed personnel have left NZDF to go and do other things. And most of the people that have left those that have that experience, it's that NCO core again, and it has had extraordinary ramifications already. We have ships tied up at dock because we don't have the people that are needed to get them out to sea. Along with the NZSAS, one of the trades that was particularly struck by this crisis was that of marine engineers. And marine engineers are called within the military ship stoppers because If you take them out, the whole thing doesn't work. And these people have left because the pay that they can get outside military service is so much better. They've left because the opportunities that the military promised of travel, of deployment to some of the world's hotspots hasn't really been there over the last handful of years. And they can go and do more exciting things in the civilian world and have somewhat of a family life to go with it. You briefly touched on some of the ramifications there, but can you go further into detail about what impact these staffing losses could have on our defence industry. So one of the things that the Defence Force provides New Zealand as a benefit is uh, we go and help out around the world and in return the rest of the world looks favourably on us. And one of the crazy things about this crisis is that in one of the defence documents that I've seen recently, they referred to the lack of plumbers in the army as having strategic implications. And that's because we can't send people overseas, we can't send a significant deployment of people overseas without having plumbers to make sure that they're going to get good drinking water when they get there, to make sure that wastewater is able to be disposed of. There's a real raft of nuts and bolts, basic things. And so without plumbers, we can't deploy If we can't deploy, we don't earn those brownie points around the world as a good world citizen. The same thing with the the ship stoppers, the marine engineers. If we don't have marine engineers, we can't put our ships out to sea. You know, we're sending um, six people off to help in the Middle East uh, with the um, trouble that shipping lanes uh, are facing at the moment. 
we couldn't send the frigates if we wanted to because they're not fit for deployment at the moment and we don't have any other marine capability that we can send. If you want to stop a New Zealand ship, you don't have to sink it. You just have to give the guy that runs the engines a decent paying job. Now, Fish, you've reported that up to $30,000 may be made in payments to some staffers to keep them retained. How unusual is it to offer these big bonuses to staff to keep them on board? It's highly unusual that NZDF is offering its personnel big payments, retention payments uh, to stay. And unusual too, the short period of time that it covers. For the NZSAS, the payments range up to 30000 depending on rank and experience and that's only to keep people on until the end of June next year. Yeah, and it's no secret that there are other issues as well. I know they're a running joke with a lot of reporters, and I think the public in general is that the Hercules plane always breaks down when the Prime Minister goes overseas. Does the problem mainly lie with pay and money, or are there deeper issues at the Defence Force? I have a great deal of uh, sympathy, actually, for the Air Force pilots that fly those Hercules. They're they're incredible planes, and they've got me in and out of some really terrible places. It just seems that whenever politicians turn up, it has the sort of inverse Midas touch, (laughs) and they can't fly. Uh, The problems into their faces are wide-ranging, and they have been a consequence of 20 to 30 years of defence being downplayed at the cabinet table as something that requires investment, as something that sits high within our national priorities. And uh, the wash-up is what we have here. There's been issues along the way. There was a crisis 12 to 14 years ago when National was last in and they set about merging back office functions and that led to a huge rush of people leaving the Defence Force at that time. Not as bad as we're experiencing now, but that also gave defence a pretty big kicking and disheartened people that would otherwise have stayed on. And there's other issues over time, removing a airstrike capability back at the very early 2000s, and somewhat hard to argue that New Zealand needed one, but that again was a blow that struck at a lot of people that may have otherwise stayed or seen a longer career in New Zealand Defence Force. One of the problems that we have too is that Successive governments uh, and the Defence Force itself have not done a particularly good job of uh, telling their story to the New Zealand public. I would think that most New Zealanders would be incredibly surprised to find out that we have 35 to 40,000 contemporary veterans. That's people that have served New Zealand um, in, in some sort of a conflict zone or disaster zone since the mid-90s. That's a big number, but it's an untold story. For a long period of time, having a military and having a military do what it does, exerting force, was not a very popular uh, political position to be in. We talked about peacekeepers instead of warfighters. We let our history be one that was told at Gallipoli or Monte Cassino during World War II and not a history that speaks of Afghanistan or what we did in Bosnia or the work that we did in Timor. And those more recent stories are stories that that could have been told better, should have been told better. So if the US were to ask you to extend the military operation beyond July, 
What happens there? Well, it's all hypothetical. And the fact is, is that we, they, they could ask. Well, we're not we're not expecting that to happen, and it's hypothetical. I mean, we we're pretty stretched, as you'll realise that the defence force got quite depleted over the last couple of years under Labour. We don't really have the same military complex that other countries have, say, for example, the US. And we're also quite geographically isolated from some of these major conflicts, especially the ones that are happening right now. In your mind, do you think it is important for us to have a strong defence? And if so, why? I think it's incredibly important that uh, our military is strong, uh, is funded to do the job that we want it to do. I think we need a better idea as to exactly what that job is. In the near future, there's two tunes to which we'll be marching. One of those is international cooperation, and that's very much about uh, our defence force being able to bolt into our traditional allies and serve alongside them. The other thing that we're going to be required to do is greater assistance across the Pacific, and that's going to be with disaster relief as the impact of climate change bites deeper and harder. We're going to need to be better equipped for that, uh, better capable to get out and help our neighbours. Because uh, if we don't, you can be sure that China's going to. So, yeah, we do We do need to look at exactly what our defence force is meant to be doing and then to fund it accordingly. And unfortunately, given the state that it's in now, it's going to need quite a bit of surge funding, I think, to get it back to a point where it can stand on its own two feet. On the international cooperation front, today Judith Collins, our Defence Minister, is meeting with her Australian counterpart. Can you tell us a little bit about the plans that our countries have to work more collaboratively across the Tasman going forward? New Zealand, as one of the uh, Five Eyes members, works very closely on an intelligence but also a security front. Uh, So that's with Australia, uh, the US, Canada and the UK. From an Australian perspective, it makes a lot of sense for us to work more closely with the Australians. They bring to this a scale that New Zealand can't achieve on its own in terms of some of the transport or logistics that we've got. We have sought to rely on Australian military transport planes to uh, ship some of our kit around because either our planes are out of action or they're not able to shift equipment that's as big as the Australians can bring. So, yeah, it's, it's very much about New Zealand not needing to have everything that a much larger country's military would have, but for us to have particular elements that will bolster and support partner militaries and that we can just bolt on to their efforts and make a good contribution in that sense. You wrote earlier this month that Collins could be the person to fix our issues with the Defence Force. Do you think she can do a better job than her predecessors at addressing say, for example, the staff retention issue? Judith Collins is somewhat of a force of nature. And so were there somebody to go to the cabinet table with an argument to make, she would be one of the people I would think that was able to make that most forcefully. In terms of defence ministers over a long period of time, Ron Mark, he is a standout. He managed some sort of revitalisation of NZDF, but unfortunately... For NZDF, there was a change of guard at the 2020 election, and uh, that didn't continue. Uh, Judith Collins would 
certainly be capable of meeting that challenge and making that argument forcefully. She's got a lot of portfolios, though. She's Attorney General. She's got the intelligence agencies that she oversees. Defence uh, is something that would definitely benefit from her ministerial leadership were she inclined to lean in and have those uh, defence bosses bring her wish lists and bring her some vision and some reason for her to, to lead in that support. Because if she puts that support in, she'd be a real power player. Thanks so much for joining us, David. That's it for this episode of The Front Page. You can read more about today's stories and extensive news coverage at nzherald.co.nz. The Front Page is produced by Ethan Sills. Paddy Fox is the sound engineer. I'm Katie Harris. Subscribe to The Front Page on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in tomorrow for another look behind the headlines.